Hello, 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 everybody. Today is Wednesday, September 26th, and we're bringing you Block Digest episode 126 at Block Height 543,185. What's Are up? Are you Rick? sure we're 126? Or no, 128, damn it, my brain. <laughs> this is what happens uh, when you're sleep deprived and you drink orange juice instead of coffee. <sighs> Yeah, I'm on my like third cup of coffee now, man. It's still cool outside, and I've been digging through what these legislators like losing their minds in D.C. It's pretty ridiculous. But uh, yeah, it's been, I don't know. It's one of those mornings, man, where I'm trying to wake up, but it's like everything just seems to be keeping me in this like dream state. What's going on with you today, Jeanine? Guys, I just, I, I think I, I realize now, you know, this whole thing about solving the double spending problem. I think we might have actually gotten it wrong. I think it's actually the solution. Oh, double spins for days. That sounds great. <laughs> okay, I made a typo with my mouth and you made a typo with your brain. I I'm not yep. I'm not <laughs> Alrighty. So uh my name is Purity. <laughs> Oh, man. Purdy. All right. Right into it. Right into it. All right. Let's 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 try and not do an overrun today and wind up with YouTube taking two days to process the, the first 10 minutes. Right, right. All right. So first up, uh, Slush Labs Division um, Brains has dropped Brains with Two Eyes OS which is apparently going to be the first of many forays into different products and services in the mining ecosystem besides their pool. And this is uh, pretty awesome uh, for those who remember Antbleed. Um, it's, it's pretty much a open source Linux-based um, OS for mining equipment based on OpenWRT, which is pretty much um, an open source uh, operating system slash firmware that you can flash onto a lot of consumer routers based on Linux so that you can have a lot more fine control over what the device is actually doing and not be stuck with whatever shady things are stuck in your router's firmware managing all of your internet traffic. But right now, um, sadly, this is still in beta and not being recommended whatsoever for any kind of large-scale deployment on uh, large farms or anything. So if you want to tinker with this, I suggest you limit it to a single device. But 
they pretty much replicated a lot of the features and functionality that come in stock firmware with mining equipment. They have the usual uh, web interface where you can monitor performance, control where your miner's pointed, all, all those little uh, bits and pieces, as well as started working on some actual performance efficiencies, which I'm sure miners all around the world are going to be very happy about another way to kind of squeeze a little more efficiency out of their hardware. But really, I think the, the prime benefit is that this is just completely open source. And right now they have deployable images for the Antminer S9 and the Dragon Mint T1. Although with the T1, it is only compatible with uh, the variant using the Xilinx control board. So before you start tinkering with things or flashing stuff, make sure that your equipment is actually using that control board or I'm betting there is definitely a legitimate risk of bricking something. So be careful with that and don't just start plugging stuff in and flashing without making sure your hardware is compatible. But yeah, um, I, I would say this is a huge, huge step forward in terms of actually having full control over your mining equipment. Yeah, like I said, when, uh, first got started hope everybody remembers ant bleed and the potential to not only shut down your miner remotely due to air quote remote control services built into the firmware but also potentially actually brick and destroy the hardware if it continued having power fed to it while it was not actually performing operations so that was a serious risk to the network at, at large as well as your your actual equipment and having something like this that hopefully will start attracting a, a large development base in terms of you know mining experts in the ecosystem will get a lot of eyes and a lot of features built into this based on those eyes as well as the the security that comes from auditing it and miners will have a an actual open source option in terms of what software is actually controlling the hardware out there. You know, it's, if we ever do get to the point where we have to legitimately start worrying about governments mandating backdoors and firmware or shady kill switches or anything of the like, you know, this, this would go a long way to alleviating that kind of problem. You simply take receipt of your equipment and replace the firmware with brains os and you know like i said depending on how this actually flushes out and how much of a community it attracts you can have a lot higher assurance that there's no kind of hinky funny shit going on with your mining software so i i am really kind of excited to see where slush labs go with this and they've also been talking about potentially bundling up images for um, releases of Bitcoin Core and Lightning Network software to run on single board computers like the Banana Pi, which is pretty much a beefier version of the Raspberry Pi, and try to make you know running your actual full implementations a, a little simpler and more plug and play. So really hoping that this kind of leads to a, a lot of development and new new software sets and features that users can take advantage of without uh, the hassle or headache of kind of hacking things together themselves. Yeah, man, I'm sure they will. I mean, God, if you, it's like when the Amp Bleed story broke, it was like one of those things where really like just 
I don't know. I remember when it's like almost like where I was when that story broke. It was like, wow, just really kind of blew me away. And so to have like a, an open source, you know, type of open source software to run these uh, miners on, it's just uh, great that, yeah, that, you know, more people are going to be working with it and you're not going to run into some problems like that. And, uh, you know, I know that how long and Dragon Mint were uh, working to do some open source mining stuff too. And I mean, does this kind of just go along with what they were doing or like, uh, was that really more or less just like their minor, uh, their hardware was like, uh, I'm trying to think of what the difference is between brain OS and the how long miners. Well, the how long was just talking about like open sourcing the actual hardware designs for the chips and kind of letting uh, competitors hop on with that. Although they, I do believe, although I'm not a hundred percent sure that they also open sourced their firmware and we're kind of doing work for a while after the release to optimize things. But I don't think they ever really went as far as slush labs or brains here, like kind of committing to constant development and open sourcing it for more mining equipment than just the how long. Although I do think there are a few developers out there who've kind of hacked the how long firmware onto an S9 before. I don't think there was any real attempts to to make it simpler user friendly all right all right yeah i mean like uh definitely good to have something to where uh you know you can try and move it across uh all these miners and that's the way it's uh meant to be all just uh yeah just thinking about the like the name brains i'm wondering like i, I was actually thinking about the image doing some zombie scene because of brains brains but smart brains that are doing this not some zombie brains but see, that's what zombies do. They they try to eat the smart brains. Ah, okay. Well, that's what they're doing. They're gobbling up all the smart brains, and yeah, they're. Uh, I imagine we'll see some brain OS on uh, a lot of different hardware before they, um, you know. I, don't, I mean, it just helps. Like it's going to help mining development. You know, like you were saying, help developers just get things done. I mean, if you uh, want to move forward with your mining hardware development, it's like great to have something to work with instead of a. Uh, you know, just porting something over and hoping everything works well and try to kick out the bugs where you find them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like one of, one of the reasons they even brought up in their, their blog post announcing this for like why they did this is even just like aside from like hinky shit or backdoors and firmware, there, there have been just a decent number of like errors that resulted in weird behavior or less efficient or less efficiency than the hardware was actually capable of and i mean like really project this out long term i mean i don't see any reason why we couldn't see this develop in a direction where hardware manufacturers simply develop the hardware and actually start you know building things out specifically to work with brain os or kind of counting on or collaborating with uh, slush labs to kind of get compatibility out the door. I mean, you know, if, if they're kind of putting this effort and development into this anyway, then it would only benefit hardware manufacturers to try to kind of collaborate and, you know, take a little bit of the weight off their back where they could concentrate more simply on the hardware designs and not worry about so much of the software thing for uh development and mining i think you know like you're saying we'll see a lot of people uh 
kind of get rid of their headaches whenever they're doing the development and just say like, all right, we're just going to focus on this and we know we can, uh, you know, test out the specs and everything that we're thinking uh, once we get a hardware set up and then we can just flush it out from there. So, yeah, I mean, there's already lots of developments happening in mining and some stuff that I'm sure we haven't even really uh, covered yet because, you know, the mining industry and the way that that all operates. So it's good to, yeah, just know that this is also one of those tools back there that's helping all this uh, industry move forward. Mm -hmm. So everybody knows what that sound means. On to the next one. So Paul Sports, two days ago, announced the first drive chain code release. Paul, pull your head out of your ass and stop beating a dead horse. It's not going to fucking happen. Okay? Now, I'm, I'm gonna, it's time, time to strap in for a Shinobi rant. Uh, I'll get the easy one out of the way first. Um, his his claim and justification for drive chains is that it will allow new features to be brought in without soft forks because everybody knows that all people care about in this space are features. He claims that it's going to kill all altcoins because there's no point in making an altcoin anymore. Paul, you're a fucking retard people don't make altcoins to test new features they do it because they can print fucking money out of thin air and line their pockets a drive chain is not going to change the incentive to print money out of thin air nobody is going to use this for this reason because it's tied to bitcoin you make a drive chain, people put Bitcoins in it, and they're worth more or less the same as Bitcoin. You can't print money out of thin air doing that. You can't get rich overnight doing that. Your understanding of the incentives for creating altcoins is just so far off base, I don't even know where to start. You're just wrong. This, this is not going to, in any reality, destroy altcoins. That is delusional. Secondly, Paul constantly claims that drive chains have no centralization pressures on miners. And that's nonsense. The entire problem with side chains, vanilla side chains, not just drive chains, is that when you create a side chain that involves miners, that is merge mined, what you're doing has all of the same negative downsides as a block size increase. Money moves in there. Miners' revenue is stuck in there. The only way to collect it is mine that chain. And you have to validate a chain and all of the transactions it's processing to know that the next block you make is valid. You cannot have a side chain, a vanilla one, without it having the exact same effects on mining centralization in terms of transaction selection and block creation as a block size increase, okay? Paul's claim that drive chains fix this problem is nonsense. All it does is delay the inevitable and make it infinitely worse because it compounds the possible negative downsides until we're at a point where Bitcoin's price is no longer exponentially mooning and by that point, it's going to be a hugely critical global asset. So to really give the short breakdown here, 
the entire model of drive chains pretty much relies on two core things. The first is mining decentralization to ensure that theft does not happen because miners are not colluding. The second key point is that somebody besides a miner is going to run a drive chain node. And that node that is not mining constructs all of the blocks for the drive chain and keep a tiny bit of the fee that it's collecting from that to pay its own costs and a little bit of profit. And then it pays the rest of the fee income to the miners for committing to that drive chain block in the main chain and making it a valid drive chain block. So in the long term, the economics are completely skewed and undermine the entire drive chain design. In the long term, what's going to happen is Bitcoin's price is going to stop exponentially increasing and people are going to bring more and more miners online until the cost of mining is pretty much at the point of what miners are making. And when we get to this point, the only way for a miner to increase their income without fees spiking up or the price of Bitcoin continuing to skyrocket again is going to be to take that drive chain node that's keeping a little bit of the fees for itself and not giving them to miners and run it themselves. And when we get to that point and this starts happening, miners who operate these drive chain nodes themselves are going to have a competitive edge over those who don't. And this gets to a point where if miners are not running these drive chain nodes themselves, they're not going to be able to compete because they're not collecting profit that the competitors who do are. And so in the long term, when Bitcoin has become a hugely valuable global asset, all of these negative effects of centralization are going to kick in and you're not going to be able to compete as a miner without operating drive chain nodes yourself. And at this point, all of those negative centralization effects of a side chain that involves miners are going to kick in because you're going to have to, as a miner, run this node yourself to stay competitive and it starts centralizing mining. And at this point, it starts undermining the entire security assumption of drive change, which is that mining stays decentralized so that theft isn't possible. And the real cherry on top, in my opinion, is by this point in time, if Bitcoin has not imploded and failed, what we're likely to see in terms of the mining ecosystem is large nations and corporate players as the majority of the mining power. Because that's, that's just how the scale of all of this is going to play out unless we start going down the road of constantly changing proof of work, which will break Bitcoin for its own reasons. And in that landscape, there will very much be, as mining starts centralizing because of these delayed pressures of drive chains, incentives to attack drive chains. Because you are talking about nations that compete with each other globally. You're talking about large corporations that compete with each other globally. So there will very much be an incentive for players who ha have an aligned incentive against another player to attack and steal funds from their drive chain. So in the long term, the incentive for this kind of system completely implodes on itself. When, when Paul says that there are no centralization pressures in mining with a drive chain, he's full of shit. 
what he should be saying is it delays all of these pressures until Bitcoin has become a huge, huge important global aspect of the economy. And then they all kick in overnight and start systemically destabilizing the entire system after it's grown to a, a point where it, it is a huge underpinning aspect of the global economy. This is a completely dangerous idea. And the only way that things will not play out this way is if all operators of drive chain nodes run them at a loss. And there is no extra money for miners to get by running these drive chain nodes themselves. And the idea that the entire Bitcoin network security should be hinged on the assumption that people will just operate something at a loss is the stupidest, most dangerously naive idea that I could ever imagine a competent developer proposing. So like Paul, stop beating the dead horse. This is not going to happen. This is an incredibly dangerous and stupid idea. Give it up. The only reason, in my opinion, he keeps pushing this forward is because he is so butthurt on criticism for this idea and has become so attached to it, he just refuses to give it up because it's his pet idea. And that is not the way that you should be crafting and building ideas for a system like this. Bitcoin doesn't give a shit about your pet idea. It doesn't give a shit about your feelings. The only thing that matters is what is going to damage the system and what is going to help it thrive. And drive chains are something that in the long term will severely and perhaps fatally damage it. Man, yeah, this drive chains argument coming back around again because, I mean, it does feel like I don't, not even a year ago we were discussing this and like, uh, you know, I thought everybody kind of realized like, yeah, drive chains have this uh, vulnerability and built into them where it's going to be a, well, I would say maybe a vulnerability, however you want to word it, something where later on it's going to cause trouble down the road. I mean, the side chain drive chains argument was going on for a while there. And it does like you just, yeah, you took my note right out of uh, out of my paper here saying it's just like a butt hurt peer review thing where it's just like he doesn't like the peer review process. I mean, we've seen it's in the space where, you know, they butt up against the peer review process and they flip out and they run off and, you know, start shouting at the screen at the, you know, the rooftops about different things. And then, you know, it's like a campaign. It's just a campaign coming back around again. And uh, yeah, it really does feel like beating a dead horse because it is like, what, what's what's the new update here? What's the difference between this and what we discussed this time last year? And I mean, it's uh, it's really nothing. It's just a uh, it's just a test drive. And uh, yeah, that whole just add a bunch of features without any of the hubbub of core and the way that uh, you know. Uh, protocols get, you know, everything gets merged into the protocol, like avoiding this peer review process. That's the, that's such a great thing. It's like, I, I feel like some of these people are, you know, they're not catching that uh, an important process in Bitcoin and the peer review is like, it's building a discipline and you can't just force stuff down our throat. And especially when it's something that's going to cause a problem later on down the road and people have already flushed that out several times before and you do it again. It's like before, you know, it really did kind of come off like, you know, like he's just mad and like it didn't turn out the way he wanted. And it's just pushing it. And now it is beating a dead horse. And it just seems like almost, um, 
you know, it's just one of those things that's not favorable. The more you keep pushing it like this and saying, uh, you know, this is the way things should be. It just seems more and more like you're turning into one of these bad actors. And, uh, you know, Paul, I know you haven't, I want to say you haven't completely flipped over that side of the fence yet. So uh, don't man, like uh, come back and, you know, if you're going to come back, don't, don't bring the dead horse with you. I think he has. I mean, this is the, this is literally the same dynamic that has been playing out for almost 10 years now. Somebody has an idea and there's either a flaw in it or other people have just an objectively better idea. And this person just gets butthurt, starts screaming about how they're persecuted and how people just aren't listening to their awesome idea because there's this in click and it's, it's because of who I am and not the idea. And they just beat the dead horse over and over and over and over again until they scream and rage quit and go work on a shit coin. This, this has literally been going on for 10 years. It's the same reason Mike Hearn and Gavin left. It's the same reason Garzik rage quit. It's the same reason that Mark Friedenbach is, is going to soon be presenting his air quote upgrade, which is really just an attack on the network that, that is being called an upgrade because he's butthurt about his mask proposal being sidelined after Taproot and Graftroot were proposed. Like people need to grow the fuck up and realize that you have bad ideas sometimes. And when you have a bad idea, you put it down and you come up with another one. But Shinobi, I mean, Zuko is like really confident about this. I got robbed button. I think we should think about it again. <laughs> <coughs> oh man, come on. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great, definitely a, yeah, I mean, it is one of these things where, yeah, people they come up with these ideas and they, uh, you know, yeah, they usually spin it into an altcoin and then try to line their pockets and everything. And, uh, yeah, I think that's some, uh, yeah, it's a pretty relevant tweet just sort of showing, like, people that, you know, are like, oh, you know, this guy's smart in the space and then they come up with something like that. My goodness. It's, it's just, like, like, stop treating everything that is critical of something you propose as a personal attack. And I mean, the perfect example of the opposite of Paul's reaction is this entire B foundation situation. Like I, I, since, since that was first announced and since the, the last show where we talked about this, I've talked to multiple people involved in that. They have all been receptive. They have all listened to my criticism and none of the people I've talked to have taken it as some personal attack on them or shut down and refuse to listen to the criticism and consider it because they're acting like mature adults. And that's what people in this ecosystem need to learn to do. This isn't high school. Everything is not about you. Yeah, well said, man. I mean, uh, you know, hard to put a bow on that one. But all right, I guess you want to slide us into the update, Janine? Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, this is going to be uh, another update regarding the ongoing case uh, against Cody Wilson. Not the one about the 3D printed guns, but the one 
where he has been accused of statutory rape as of about a week ago. And as far as we are aware, he is now back in Texas. He's been in, back in Texas since, I think, Friday-ish. And he had a bond set when the warrant was initially released. The bond was set at $150,000. And they also recommended that his passport be uh, revoked, he, that he would be not allowed to travel or at least, uh, you know, held or revoked. Um, and then they also suggested an ankle bracelet. I don't know if they did those other two things yet, but uh, apparently he is already out. Someone paid the $150,000 bond and he now has to prepare to defend himself against the allegations in the Austin area. And yesterday, Defense Distributed announced that he had resigned from his position at the company on Friday and has been replaced with the former vice president of the company, who goes by uh, Paloma Heindorf, who led the press conference to announce his resignation and what their plans were moving forward after all of this has been happening and blowing up. Uh, you can watch that press conference yourself. It was recorded live by at least one person on YouTube, though the version that I watched didn't have great audio, so it might be a bit hard to hear unless you find uh, an alternative recording. But basically, what there was a lot of things said. It was it was a very short press conference. It was maybe I think twenty five minutes at most, and um, Paloma was very careful and reserved about what she said, and the reporters were, uh, in contrast, very pushy, and she was having none of it, um, as you can see by her face uh, in the show image that we had today. Um, she wouldn't even really respond to questions about what her personal reaction or perspective was on the allegations against him, and she also wouldn't say what uh, other employees of Defense Distributed, how they reacted, other than to say that they're all pushing on as usual. Um, one of the things she did say um, is that even though uh, she called she called Cody an incredible, uh, incredibly powerful figure in the fight for um, these first and second about ah. My throat's giving up. <laughs> um, <laughs> she she called Cody uh, an incredibly powerful figure in this fight for First and Second Amendment rights. and um, But she also caveated that by saying that we believe in something and that something isn't one man, it's an idea, which is probably echoing a famous quote from the V for Vendetta movie, which talked about how ideas, ideas survive, men can fail. Uh, might be an inspiration. Uh, she also described Defense Distributed as the, quote, most effective and elegant activism I'd seen performed, and I wanted to be a part of that. It's just so beautiful, isn't it, to exercise one's rights like that and to do so in a way that pushes authorities to allow you to. Too often people are perturbed by threats, and I found it incredible that this company persisted. Um, uh, and a lot of uh, the journalists in attendance who, uh, well, the journalists in attendance and the ones who watched the press conference were very salty and apparently thought it was funny to point out that prior to her new her new position today uh, as the lead of Defense Distributed, she had previously been um, a professional, like she had been in the arts and poetry professionally. And some people... I guess assumed that that kind of crowd would not necessarily gel with what they think of as American gun culture or combined with the fact that she comes from the UK, which has very strict gun control policies, obviously. But I actually think that it doesn't 
it's not too much of a contradiction. I think it actually makes a lot of sense considering what I just quoted about what she thinks about activism. Um, Cause that's, that's often where uh, poetry can lead if you don't let it go in more, uh, shall we say, uh, censored directions. And yeah, so she believes in the beauty of the activism involved, so it doesn't really surprise me. And I would say uh, all of you journalists who are, you know, making fun of that fact, uh, please stop uh, laughing at a committed woman who just won't take your shit because artists can be powerful too. Yeah, those journalists are, they're always looking for the soap opera or the high school bullies trying to like boil it down to some like, uh, yeah, just try and get people to look at the situation. I get, I don't know. I guess they're trying to make it look ridiculous because I mean, like to me, it just made perfect sense whenever it happened. I was like, well, that's good because uh, now this whole thing won't get caught up in that court case. And uh, that's the most important thing. And I'm glad that Cody saw it. Like, you know, he didn't just like, uh, you know, disappear. He like came back and, and turned step down. I think that is also just a good sign of like, um, you know, that this was something where he, you know, he felt like he was completely in the right here. I mean, this girl signed up for this website. We're supposed to, she was 18 and then all this stuff. So it, it'll be interesting to see the way that court case plays out. Maybe something will come out of that where, you know, we'll find out like that there was some people behind it or something, but just for the whole uh, defense distributed first amendment, second amendment uh, court cases, this is a, uh, you know, this is, the only step in the right direction that they could have made at this point. So yeah, like uh, I know that this, you know, I can, it's not, it sounds like, it looks like Pamela, but it's not Pamela, but uh, yeah, I know she's got, uh, you know, a big fight in front of her and yeah, it's good to have somebody that is passionate about it to the point that they'll write poetry about it. I mean, that's something that, uh, you know, yeah, I'm good for her. Good for defense distributed. Um, it's a upsetting situation all around for Cody, but I think this is the best movie could have made. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's really the only move. I mean, either step away and let Defense Distributed continue their fight or bring the entire thing down by having him associated with it and allowing the media to do exactly what they tried to do with Paloma, just constantly bring the entire press conference back around to Cody and his situation. And what are your thoughts on that? I mean, like watching the entire thing, I thought it was frankly, completely disgusting. Like almost no reporter actually asked a question relevant to defense distributed or what they're going to be doing or their business. It was just constantly journalists trying to bait her into talking about Cody and the assault charges. Yeah, and one other thing that they uh, clarified is that um, any donation money that has been sent to Defense Distributed will not be going towards Cody's legal expenses at all. And like no past donations and no future donations, they are not. I mean, obviously they're going to, like it's, it would be hard for them to completely separate. And then, like she didn't indicate whether they would even support him in you know, speech terms, let alone money. But she made it very clear that in terms of the money aspect and donations, those are going to be kept separate. You know, there's just like so much clarity that this whole thing is separate, like get it separate. Like, cause you know, 
like we were saying and speculating and everything, it's like there's just so much behind this case that, uh, you know, wrap whatever they can into it. And that's probably why we've seen these, you know, charges brought against him and this woman or this uh, minor, I suppose, counseled into, uh, you know, bringing these charges against him. So, you know, it's good that they're splitting that up as far as possible to really keep the uh, discussion about the legality of First Amendment right to free speech and the Second Amendment a right to bear arms and to a court case without in there because, you know, these courts are not exactly the uh, most legit. And so just to keep that stuff out would be great. But uh, was there anything else on defense distributing next? Nah, not really, unless Janina has something. You need to take us into the next one. I think you should show her face on screen share. Ah, okay. Well, because yeah. so just Waifu! to caveat. <laughs> no, no, not every yeah, woman is your wife, Shinomi. Yes. Um, so I want to, that was actually another question, uh, a journalist asked her during the press conference was, was she expecting to be the public face of defense distributed? And she basically said, uh, that that was not, I think something along the lines of that was not how she considered her role. Uh, and so she's not, she wasn't going to say anything about that, but to be honest, this is a pretty good face for <laughs> It's like I'm not gonna More take your shit. Yeah, just like staring down those journalists. All right, so now we've seen her face, and we know what's going on there with, uh, you know, what the update of defense distributed and everything. Let's uh, let's move over to where these journalists love to live and talk about what's going on in DC. Man. So. Uh, got some down there in the show notes uh you guys can look follow along but uh yeah let's just go into this story that uh coindesk covered talking about um an event going on in washington dc this congressman for the eighth district of ohio warren davison held a legislation legislating certainty for cryptocurrencies event it was a uh, roundtable discussion that had about 80 representatives from the cryptocurrency and traditional financial sector Stakeholders and people working to expand cryptocurrency discussed the hurdles they faced when launching projects and products in the U.S. And uh, this all comes a few weeks before Congressman Davidson, who planned, put on the whole event, plans to introduce a light touch legislation on the subject. He said, quote, your input is critical to helping us preempt a heavy handed regulatory approach that could stall innovation and kill the U.S. ICO market. And <laughs> end quote. He's trying to make an improvement from last year's SAFT framework, which uh, is a simple agreement on futures tokens, which was supposed to help uh, clear out some of the regulatory red tape for ICOs. However, this SAFT proposal was never meant to be just some guidance. As Coin Center put it, it was a it was the symptom of regulatory uncertainty. It was not the best we can do. It was the best we could do. And uh, also at this event was uh, Representative Tom. Emmer from just introduced three bills to Congress attempting this light touch legislation already. And uh, I went through these uh, bills real quick, which, like I say, and all of it's down there in the show notes, you can read in more detail. But the first one uh, that he introduced express is a uh, an expression of support for the blockchain industry and its development. 
which uh, read like it really just expressed how the U.S. should encourage growth of blockchain technologies and, and uh, just foster that development. And uh, the second bill he introduced was safe harbor for non-controlling blockchain developers and providers of blockchain services, which Coindesk boiled down to uh, miners not needing to register as money transmitters. Whenever I was digging through it, uh, the bill actually has some definitions for blockchain networks, developers, services, control, digital currencies, which uh, really all don't sound that ill-defined. However, none of the language mentions cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin. It really sticks to all the buzzwords. You see DLT in there and uh, pretty much every yeah, ICO, all that stuff is in there. But uh, you don't see cryptocurrency or Bitcoin. And the uh, third uh, bill he put forward is safe harbor for taxpayers who have cryptocurrencies resulting from a network fork. However, once again, reading through this legislation, it just keeps saying virtual currencies like it, like the past two, the other to nothing but digital currency and this one is virtual currency like which like this sounds like earlier this year or late last year everything was either a virtual currency or a digital currency like they avoided cryptocurrency and uh one interesting tidbit from that uh third bill for the safe harbor for cryptocurrencies resulting from a network fork was uh, they defined the term hard fork. They said uh, the term, which like this is a quote from the legislation, the term hard fork with respect to any convertible virtual currency, any material change in the shared digital ledger, which is used to verify by consensus transactions in such currency, if such change results in the maintenance of independent shared digital ledgers with respect to such currency, end quote which uh, I don't know, it just sounds pretty confusing to be honest, like especially whenever we're really kind of just seeing um, some, uh, I mean, like uh, I've seen Twitter, there was a discussion about 0.15 being a hard fork, which we could go into a little bit like, uh, and just like nobody took advantage of it. So it's like a hard fork doesn't necessarily have to result in two coins, I guess. Like, yeah, we could definitely get into that. But I mean, like uh, them trying to define it already just seems pretty stupid. But uh, so there was this uh, big hubbub in D.C. to try and get these legislators on the same page about giving regulatory clarity. And at about the same time, the House of Representatives weighs in to the IRS requesting they publish some comprehensive guidance for U.S. residents on cryptocurrency taxes. And uh, I think Representative Darren Soto of Central Florida nailed it with his closing remark. It's not a partisanship that's the barrier. It's unfamiliarity end quote, which, uh, yeah, education is needed. And like we've said this a lot about, but uh, I don't know if these guys have the incentive to understand the technology. I think what we are seeing here are people trying to align themselves with what looks to be a promising sector of the economy while trying to reignite the ICO market. It feels like everyone is uh, in the U.S. is waiting around for clarity are going to get left behind. But uh I know you got something to say about that uh, hard fork comment. What you got, Shinobi? Yeah, that was not a fucking hard fork. And people are frankly being idiots. Like, and I, and, and like, there are some developers out there saying that, like, no, a fork is when a block is actually mined that causes a divergence in different clients accepting it as valid. Like uh, just just deploying a client to the network is not a hard fork. 
It's when a block is mined. Otherwise, the second that Bitcoin XT, the first node was put on the network, that was a hard fork. Bitcoin Classic was a hard fork. The first Bitcoin Unlimited node being deployed was a hard fork. That's completely incoherent and illogical nonsense. There is no fork until a block is actually mined that is no longer accepted by previous clients. Trying to claim that just a client being deployed is a hard fork is the most incoherent fucking nonsense on this planet. It, it, it is just intellectually gibberish. Well, I think it's a problem even that a lot of the Bcash people have because they're under this idea. I mean, they might obviously be lying, but I think some of them are actually under the idea that Bitcoin Core is the only client for Bitcoin um, and therefore the Bitcoin Core developers control Bitcoin, except there's a bunch of compatible implementations. So I think that probably played into this a bit. Yeah, I mean, like, I was just bringing it into the story because I think it's interesting that they tried to define a hard fork in legislation already. And, like, you know, even within the industry here, it's like there's some, uh, you know, some, well, wait a minute about this and that. Like, is it really? And so, uh, yeah, just like them trying to define it early seemed kind of stupid. Sorry, what were you going to say, Chanel? gonna say again like it's 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 a completely stupid nonsense definition and i know many developers who who try to claim that as a definition and it's it's just incoherent it is the type of postmodernist nonsense that devolves into anything means anything like by that logic if i go shut down my node and raise the the block weight limit and then recompile it, I, it we just hard forked like that that's it's right. it's, it's nonsense I, yeah, it's like, man, we had way too many hard forks. Yeah, I mean, like, it would be correct to say it was a fork if someone copied the client code and made some changes. But, I mean, that's just a client code fork. That's, or, uh, like, you. there's a bunch of different types of forks. There's the client fork. There's the code fork of, like, you know, they could just fork Bitcoin, I guess. Um like and create an altcoin or they can do like a fork of the network in terms of like a consensus fork but there's there's not yeah getting all of these terms mixed up with hard fork is really bad yeah and i mean like really the only reason yeah like what i was saying i'm bringing it up is just because i think these guys are just like reaching a little too far and like trying to say like look we're we're building this legislation. We're going to help out these markets. And like, uh, you know, this is going to be a good thing. Please, uh, you know, stay in my district or donate money to me because I'm the one that's favorable for crypto. It sounds like, uh, you know, it's a lot of, um, I mean, I guess this is what they're used to, right? Is like to make a appeal to government and say like, we want some favorable regulation on this. And like, we want some clarity on this, but the reality is the incentives are not there for them to give it. And they're just going to keep it as muddy as possible. And like bringing in words like hard fork and trying to define it in legislation and uh, all these other terms and everything, I think really is just exemplary of that, that they're not really um, taking it as seriously as I think they should. I think they're really just, um, they're trying to push something out there without really knowing what they're doing. And that's kind of the stupidest move when it comes to legislation, because uh, if you draw up legislation with the, 
some bad language in there. A lot of people could get hurt. Uh, a lot of people could, you know, get charges thrown against them just because uh, the language wasn't really put together that well. And um, so, yeah, yeah, this this whole thing on DC, I really feel like it was just kind of like a virtue signaling for you know, crypto economy, cryptocurrency economy and ICOs like they want ICOs back. That's what it felt like whenever I was reading it. It just feels like the main thing is we want this ICO craze back on like the ICO bubble that popped the end of last year, the beginning of this year, wherever you want to say it happened. Um, you know, I think they want that thing to just start filling back up. And I think that's what this event was all about. But uh, if you don't have you guys got any more comments on this thing in D.C.? I mean, I would just say that I hope this legislation doesn't go the direction of the the content censorship stuff in the European Union, where it ended up being you had at least one person claiming that, you know, if you wanted to send copyrighted content to like a friend or something or a meme, then you could just you 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 could just email it to them without uploading it to the Internet. Like, I feel like we're, we might be on the verge of something like that. Uh, I hope that doesn't happen. Like, I mean, I, I trust Coinda or I trust Coin Center, Coindesk. No, I don't trust Coindesk. <laughs> I trust a, I trust Coin Center <laughs> enough. Um, I trust them in the sense that I think the chances of that happening are less likely than the European Union crap. Um, but to be fair, I've said this before, I think most of what they do is distracting legislators. I don't know if they're actually achieving much in terms of making it easier for Bitcoin or under the law. I think most of it is just distraction. I give them a lot of credit for trying to educate those guys, but it is one of those things where, you know, when you come into Bitcoin, a lot of this uh, discussion about what it takes to learn something, it feels kind of like uh, harsh where it's like, oh, you actually have to lose money to learn something. You actually have the incentive to learn something. I think that that is where these guys uh, sort of sit. It's like we can try and teach them as much as we can, but there really is not that incentive to learn it. And I don't I, I just feel like these guys that are sitting around appealing to the federal government to find some clarity on the issue are just going to be left in the dust. Someone in the troll box just said that they want to be able to atomically purchase microaggressions on the lightning network. Okay. Send me a piece of ocean. <laughs> I will glare at you and call you a genius sarcastically. <laughs> I'm offering these services in perpetuity from now on. I think, uh, yeah, your niche there, man. You're going to make a ton. Will we be able to purchase microaggressions after this legislation goes through? Coming soon. Maybe. But, uh, all right, let me let's finish up. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, don't you still got the right. uh, next one? Yeah. You were going to say something else about microaggressions and, and getting paid to do that because I know that sounds like a real good business model for you. Yeah, everybody shut up and use your Bitcoin. <laughs> so let's go into this next story where uh, it's like a local story here from Colorado where uh, we found some clarity and uh, it wasn't through appealing to the federal government. 
So on September 20th, the Colorado Division of Banking issued a new interpretive guidance for the Colorado Money Transmitters Act applicability in cryptocurrencies. The new guidance states that as long as no fiat is involved, then you're not required to get a money transmitter license, which is some uh, good news for Shapeshift here in town. I'm sure that, uh, you know, they're really happy and excited to hear about that, which uh, honestly, you know, it's some good news, really. I mean, yeah, they're uh, trying to get this money transmitter stuff out of uh, out of people's hair because that's one of the major things when people are trying to set up these businesses that involve cryptocurrencies here in uh, Colorado. So in order to achieve this guidance, it attorney general's office and the division of banking to work together for a couple months. And this guidance is expected to help the cryptocurrency firms that are trying to navigate the unregulated industry and make uh, and make their business easier to develop. And uh, now, now the bill and the story are in the show notes for you guys to cruise through. But I wanted to read out the conclusion real quick because I think it's a, a good gist of the guidance. So the conclusion for the uh, for the guidance is uh, the quote, the Money Transmitters Act aims to regulate the transmission of money, meaning legal tender. And as noted, cryptocurrencies are not recognized as legal tender. The direct transmission of cryptocurrency between two consumers is not subject to licensure under the act. With respect to transactions that involve a third party, the complete absence of fiat currency from a transmission from one consumer to another is not money transmission. Conversely, the presence of fiat currency during a transmission may be under the act. While that's a good summary, I'd still recommend reading through it as it's uh, it's actually got, you know, it's loaded with the word cryptocurrency. It mentions Bitcoin directly. And uh, there's been some discussion Wyoming and Colorado even closer when it comes to creating a positive environment for cryptocurrency development. And that's the way this stuff has to be done when I'm thought about looking for a part of the country to move to it was based on you know who will it needs to be done despite the federal government's position and i think colorado really uh, made waves in the in that with the the cannabis industry and uh standing up and saying like no we don't care if you think this, this is wrong on our citizens and uh i think here in wyoming and colorado we might actually just uh, get the clarity we need to uh, continue moving forward without having to have all these uh, appeals to uh, the federal government. I think the guys uh, squabbing in D.C. trying to get this clarity are the are, you know, they're the guys that are going to get left behind. I mean, if you really do want to actually do something in this ecosystem to help development, it's like you you actually have to do it locally and you need round this route of like this constant appeal to the people that always have picked the winners and losers and said like, you know, you're, yeah, this is the right or wrong way to do it. Like uh, we need to just do it and not, uh, you know, keep asking for, for what is it, the, the phrase better to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. Just do it guys. And like, uh, you know, you're the ones that are elected federally from your constituents and everything. If you don't have the whatever to do it, then just get the hell out of office, man. You're not doing what's right for your constituents. If you're hanging out in some place in DC to try and find answers for your constituents, you are doing the wrong thing. It is not, it's not helping anyone. So you, you said that as long as it's a non-custodial service, it doesn't have to register as a money transmitter. Is that what that was about? 
Uh, it's not the custodial. It's just as long as fiat stays out of the process. Uh, like, uh, yeah. it's, it's just crypto. Then you can still have custody and, uh, you know, there's no money transfer. It's all about just keeping fiat out of the process. Yeah, because uh, I want to make one correction that's kind of uh, related to companies at Colorado. Uh, when we were talking about the Shapeshift stuff, uh, I mistakenly said that Shapeshift was in Colorado. Actually, I completely forgot it's a Swiss company. I had forgotten that Eric Voorhees is the one that's from Colorado. But yeah, I saw Eric tweeting about this and it's like, too bad you didn't actually put yourself in Colorado because uh, maybe you would have had a better chance with all your American and Canadian employees. I mean, like that that's the weird thing about, you know, even if you have overseas companies like this, if you have a, all your your employees are basically Americans or a lot of them are, you're yeah, you're you're basically taking is still a significant amount of risk by doing that. So if he was just going to have a bunch of Americans and he himself remain an American living in Colorado or somewhere around there, um, yeah, he should have probably just put it in a U.S. state um, and taken advantage of the fact that Colorado is being a bit more lax than a lot of other places. I don't even think it's lax. I think they just understand. Like, I mean, uh, it's really hard to say like uh, what exactly it is that makes them understand except for the incentive for cannabis to be a regulated market because it does very well for them and the only thing that's really holding them up is the uh all the banking problems the problems of like uh, just starting a dispensary and getting a bank to handle your money and then like there's i'm telling you there's like brings trucks and large vaults and all this stuff when it comes to securing your cash around here and uh, yeah, that's it's all headaches that they have to deal with because of the way that money is handled handled with cannabis. So I mean, like they actually have when I talk about the people in D.C. and their incentives to actually understand it, I think that yeah, you can actually see the incentive for Colorado to understand this and get it right. And I think that's why yeah, this uh, I don't know, this makes a lot more sense than what we were seeing out of uh, D.C. earlier this week. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems like a fucking reasonable approach to me, you know, but I don't know. Is there uh, any more comments on this? Because I think kind of dense topics coming up should try to slide along. All good. All right. So Bitmain has officially filed its application with the Hong Kong Stock Exchange for its IPO. And for now, um, this is pretty much just going off of a Coindesk article in the show notes. Um, the actual prospectus is more than 400 pages. So I'm going to try and pick through that between now and Sunday and maybe come back and go um, over a little more in detail if there's really anything worth it. But for the most part, um, in declaring their revenues and their holdings, um, you know things look a little bit more accurate than the the initial nonsense and figures being thrown around. Um, you know, you're looking at around two and a half billion in revenue in 2017, up from around a quarter of a billion um, in 2016, 
And right now, this year's revenue being around the net of 2017 is a little over two and a half billion. Um, you're also looking at a profit of around 1.2 billion last year, which is pretty much a 100% increase. Or I'm sorry, um, no, 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 um, to do math in my head, uh, 10 times increase from the previous year. And pretty much right now, there's been a slight um, drop in terms of the overall percentage of their cryptocurrency holding, which would be Bitcoin, Bcash, Ether, Litecoin, and Dash. Um, it was in the end of last year around 30% of assets, but right now around 28%. So looking at this, it's about an increase of around 10 million in fiat value so looking at this i think it's safe to say that they haven't really liquidated any sizable amounts um aside from shuffling things around and this is probably just an increase in other assets and hardware sales um yada 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 um Really, the, the important figure here, I think, is around 27% of funds received for mining products was in cryptocurrencies. So the rest is fiat payments. And the one interesting thing that I found in this that wasn't just figures and kind of trying to play uh, PR damage control after all of the blatant fraud and the lack of quarter two figures which they still haven't published despite actually going through with an IPO filing now is Bitmain has been buying a lot of land. Um, in China, um, they have bought a decent amount of land in the uh, Ningxia and Sichuan province. Um, Sichuan, if everybody remembers, was the area um, recently flooded with a very heavy concentration of mining equipment as well as their sites in inner Mongolia. But really the interesting thing here is in discussing foreign sites, um, we know about the Ant Creek facility in Washington, the facility in Texas that uh, Rick previously covered as well as another one in Tennessee and one in Quebec. So if everybody remembers um, Jonathan Bertrand coming on for a special edition a while ago to talk about Hydro-Quebec's um, price um, attitude being rethought in a flood of applications and Bitmain explicitly denying any kind of attempt to set up mining operations there. They were simply, in their words or claims, opening an office to deal with um, customer services and people who had purchased their products in Canada, their IPO filing shows that they're actually planning on building a mining operation site in Quebec. So in other words, um, th their reaction to that whole situation developing and fingers being pointed at Bitmain is complete horseshit. And according to these documents, they, they are actually opening a site in Quebec for the purposes of operating mining equipment. So I thought that was a, a real interesting thing to come out in this IPO in, instead of quarter two figures.
I mean, uh, I don't know how much we're going to get out of that, uh, out of this IPO. I mean, I imagine they have to release some of this information, but, you know, there's a lot of money to be made here. And, you know, it's a Hong Kong IPO. And I don't know all that stuff that uh, has to come out with that. But I, I don't know what to think about this stuff other than, you know, just like sit back, wait and see how it works. Because, uh, I mean, like right now, what's their uh, right now? Their only option really as far as becoming profitable right now is just like setting up a mine in Quebec or like and doing this IPO at the same time. Like, I, I don't know, man. It's like, uh, like My you're point is that like John's speculation on the situation was that Bitmain was pretty much attempting to bid up um, the electricity prices with insane um, applications for mining equipment and try to establish a monopolized deal with Hydro-Quebec, which Hydro-Quebec denied, which Bitmain denied, claiming that their office set up there was simply for customer support. And now in their IPO documents, oh, they're full of shit. They're actually planning on opening a mining facility in Quebec. That did come out with that IPO documents was we did see they had a lot more hardware on uh, on mm -hmm. their balance sheet than we expected. And so it would give them the capability to set that mine up. So, um, yeah, it's hard to say where Bitmain is going to be in this system other than I imagine they're going to be around for a little bit longer. But, uh, man, I guess they're going to be in Canada and Texas and um, they're going to try to be at least. We'll see how this IPO goes. I mean. I, I don't know who exactly is going to be the purchasers of this other, other than people that are really just, uh, yeah, they're just throwing money at what they think could make them. Because, uh, I mean, if you start looking into the details of Bitmain, they've made some really stupid errors and um, how exactly they're going to move forward without making future. I mean, that's, yeah, it's just you're throwing money at it, hoping you're going to get some back in return. There's no guarantee like the way it kind of felt like it used to be. If you invested in Bitmain, I imagine there would be this thought of like, well, yeah, they're they're mining this. This is their electricity cost. You know, you're going to get a return on your investment where now it's just like this. Uh, it's this flimsy name that people might just throw some money at because it's, uh, you know, it's big name recognition in the space. Yeah, I mean, just from things that i have personally noticed investors slide decks are usually the least truthful thing you can find about if you actually want to learn about how well a company is operating or what it um <laughs> what you know so i don't know not very hard to trust bitmain they might they might be telling their i mean is there any way that they would be telling investors or trying to signal to investors that they're going to Quebec as like a good sign and like invest more money or is it definitely a done deal that they're going to Quebec? Well, um, I actually just poked John and he just gave me a highlighted section from something I'm assuming came from Hydro Quebec that is stating a single applicant may be the only one to benefit from the whole allotted 500 megawatts available. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's 
because from from my personal experience um yeah a lot of this stuff is just full of bullshit and it's mostly it's it's about signaling to certain types of people and so every time you read this stuff you have to consider like who are they signaling to and why would they have reason to misrepresent anything um so yeah i wouldn't be surprised if like i wouldn't be surprised if they are going there and they were just lying about it before and i also wouldn't be surprised if they are going there but there actually isn't as much interest as they're hyping or at least people think there will be well john's whole theory was effectively that bitmain was flooding fake applications to freak out hydro quebec and establish themselves uh, a negotiating position to establish a deal like this yeah and I, like the section saying that they're awarding it all to one person or one company i mean Sounds like they are. I mean, that's what if Hydro Quebec get in line either. But uh, geez, I don't know. I like to. Somebody in the troll box said this Bitmain IPO sounds like a Bitmain bailout. I don't know why they're even getting it. They should. I guess they got the hardware and the names, and uh, they can. They do have some revenue to lobby, even though it's. Um, I guess. I guess they're still making moves. They're trying to stay alive. I mean. I don't blame them. I mean, it's Bitmain, you know, they're trying to do something, but uh, I don't know. Their moves in the past have shown that it's not really that smart of an investment, but um, I mean, things are go going along really far in the mining space and uh, the competition is just ramping up. And if all they got is a bunch of old hardware on their books and they're ready to go over to Canada to turn it on, well, I don't, I don't know. You know, I mean, there's all these other miners that are coming out that are going to be more efficient. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a mind bender to try and figure out what exactly is going to happen with them, but playing out really well for them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, fuck Bitmain. Yeah. All right. I'm going to jump into the next uh, shitty company in the space. Um, Conbase has recently announced that they have established a online form where you can apply to have your digital asset listed on Coinbase. And so they're pretty much taking open applications for shitcoins with a application fee and a listing fee and are going to try to start fast tracking listing more assets even going so far as to deciding that they will list things in jurisdictions where they believe they won't cause issues and simply prevent the listing of those assets anywhere that they do and yeah um pretty much they're just going full-on shitcoin crazy and are claiming they will appease any demands out of the regulators in terms of extra customer verification to ensure that um, geographic um, limitations on listings are respected and dealing with the extra compliance costs to you know roll out this kind of thing and i i like this is just completely fucking absurd right now with, with the, all of the shit that the attorney general from New York is spewing about market manipulation, with the fact that the entire Bcash incident on Coinbase was not mentioned once 
and that report. Despite all, it's oh, just they're rolling ahead and they're gearing themselves up to list as many shit coins as they possibly can. It, like it, this is it's it's fucking absurd at this point. Have we? Uh, did we also? I don't know if we actually made it one of the stories in a past show yet. But did we talk about how they before this story? Uh, there was another one about how they were bundling Bitcoin with a few other coins. Did we talk about that yet? No, we didn't. But yeah, they're, yeah. they're also so that dealing was, with the basket. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, so the basket thing was also happening. So in combination with this, it just seems like, yeah, they're <laughs> they're, they're trying to get more activity and uh, maybe they have some bags to sell. Uh, who knows? But they... Yeah, they definitely want more activity with all of the altcoins that they may be buying into at the moment. <laughs> Not surprised. Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, God, you know, Coinbase, I don't know. Man. They just keep degrading and degrading. And it just makes me aggravated that, you know, they're doing all this stuff. And, uh, you know, they're also at the same time setting up that lobbying firm to lobby uh dc people and educate them it's just gonna go fart up dc some more and just like you know confuse these guys some more and uh yeah it's just like a google doc i was like clicking it too i was like what what is it because you they had that process and now it's just like a google doc you just go on there and say i'm gonna list xyz coin and this and that and I guess they're, you know, they're trying to be the Binance of the U.S. But, yeah, it's kind of ridiculous that they're so heavily regulated or they're so close to regulators. And, uh, yeah, the the same time you got the New York Attorney General's office screaming from the rooftop to the globe that everybody needs to behave and, uh, you know, stop all this market manipulation while you got uh, guys, you know, turning around all this BCH and uh, right before it gets listed and all this madness. It's just a... It's like it's it's a clear example of the way that the current regulation system works of like picking winners and losers. And they're 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 on the Coinbase's winning side. They're saying, hey, Coinbase is going to be a winner. We're going to let them list whatever the hell they want to list. They're paying the right people. This is the way it goes. So, yeah, it's disgusting. And next up, um, also Coinbase. They have just partnered with this firm, Caspian, to start integrating all of its tools into Coinbase Pro. And so for those not familiar with Caspian, it's pretty much a a product that offers a full stack of trading tools, attempting to kind of do what um, Tagomi Systems, I believe it was called, uh, Peter Thiel's company from a few months back to try to consolidate access to liquidity in different order books through a single platform or tool set. And Caspian is is pretty much doing an ICO to raise funding and pretty much offer a discount for customers who use their, their platform paying in tokens. And yeah, so th- this recently just was announced right after Coinbase's application process was announced. This is like this. This is not just like let's become the next Polo. Like they're trying to establish liquidity in order books for all of these shit coins, and then plug them into the kind of systems that traditional, you know, legacy traders or investors are accustomed to, 
where you have access to a number of disparate order books and, and can pretty much interact directly with the entire ecosystem. And, you know, call me paranoid, but looking at this, looking at Coinbase's historical attitude in the ecosystem as a whole, looking at the blockchain association, which they recently started in partnership with a few other companies. I mean, to me, this, this just looks like an outright attack uh, on Bitcoin. Like they're attempting to effectively establish order books and trading pairs for a large degree of shit coins directly against the U.S. dollar and link this in liquidity wise with the kind of systems being built out for legacy institutions and players right now. And, you know, I've talked about this on the show before, like part of the whole dynamic in this ecosystem is Bitcoin is the on ramp. Like that, that, that's why these markets function as they do, because all of the liquidity moving into other things has to effectively go through Bitcoin. And establishing a large number of pairs against US dollars, it starts to erode and weaken that entire dynamic and make it much easier to perform speculative attacks against Bitcoin by just bypassing the, the entire dynamic that exists in the market right now. Like if, if you try to dump Bitcoin, you're dumping all of the shit coins out there too. E even the ones now that do have decent sized USD markets, there's still enormous sized Bitcoin markets against them. And tweaking that dynamic, it, it makes it a lot more viable to perform the kind of attacks such as just dumping Bitcoin down and pumping other shit coins to completely distort the entire market cap metric, which despite re really having no merit or, or it, it really doesn't matter unless there's trading volume there to back it up, you can further distort the kinds of signals that consumer investors and traders look at in terms of gauging this ecosystem as a whole. I'm sorry, man, I'm kind of comment list on this one it's just like yeah con base being con base going all the way in they're being complete like they're being a completely malicious company right now uh, effectively just trying to hook large pools of liquidity into scams and and take advantage of that to profit off of trading fees to the to the detriment of this entire ecosystem Man, yeah, we need to, uh, you know, it's still so early on with all this stuff as far as, uh, you know, one main, you know, mining company for a while. And now we're starting to finally expand on all that. And uh, yeah, you know, Coinbase was the major exchange for a long time and they still provide some service that is uh, helpful to a uh, few people. I, I think you know that, but I mean, like well, at the same time, they're just like, yeah, like you're saying, they're being real malicious in the space and it's it's aggravating but uh you know at the same time there are competitors that are coming up and uh you just gotta always uh what are those other people cash app and uh you know bitflyer and uh there's a couple other guys that uh i would go to before coinbase i mean you know coinbase is useful for their shift card if you uh you know are down need to spend a little bit to get some groceries but uh that's about it yeah, but let's pop along into something that 
does not make me pissed off. Uh, so Japan and Africa. Um, I'm sure by now everybody is familiar with SBI and Japan and all of the moves they're making as far as integrating into the crypto ecosystem and just private uses of blockchain overall. Um, they've recently partnered with, or not, I'm sorry, not SBI proper, SBI Remit, a subsidiary, has recently partnered with BitPesa to kind of build out remittance corridors between Japan and Africa. And this is one of those use cases that really isn't something that directly puts private keys or Bitcoin itself in users' hands, but is a very important use case and something that can legitimately have profound impact on the global economy as a whole. So I, I, I'm pretty sure I don't have to explain just how fucked up the banking system is in Africa and the large number of inefficiencies dealing with correspondent banks that creep into the picture when you're talking about moving money into or out of the continent or even in, in a number of cases just around the continent itself. But SBI Remit has around half a million customers and 90 of, or 90% of them are foreigners who are pretty much remitting money uh, out of Japan. And this is, you know, it's a huge thing to take the opportunity to, to capitalize on. Because when you're looking at specifically Japan to Africa and the number of correspondent banks involved, you're potentially talking fees of up to 7% and huge delays in the movement of money. And there's a, a decent amount of opportunity for capital flow here. I mean, some of the specific partnerships that BitPesa is kind of looking at establishing here are cosmetic companies, um, obviously electronics companies. And there's actually a pretty decently sized used car market um, between Japan and Africa. And right now, um, th this partnership is pretty much dealing with um, moving between the Japanese yen and the fiat currencies of Ghana, Kenya, Morocco, Nigeria, Senegal, Tanzania, Uganda, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And using Bitcoin instead of a lot of these correspondent banks, whenever it makes sense, can pretty much take those 7% remittance fees and drop them down to around 3%. And by not being kind of radical or extremist about it and looking at where it makes more sense to use a correspondent bank network or Bitcoin or how exactly they're going to settle you know, things out through the middle and at both endpoints, you can bring down more than 50% the remittance fees here. And BitPesa is set up, you know, pretty much to, to manage the, the risks and the hedging on both ends of these trades. Like the, their entire core business is pretty much built around using Bitcoin for remittances. Like the, this is a very established company in the space and one that actually has not lost sight of the, the entire purpose of this, this currency from the minute it was founded, which is providing access to services to people that don't have them. And especially given, you know, Japan's 
you know, they're one of the most developed countries in the world and they deal with producing and manufacturing a large amount of different kinds of products. Like bringing that cost down more than 50%, like this is something that could really facilitate a large growth in capital flows and, and asset flows between these two countries and really start providing opportunities for businesses in Africa that didn't exist before or were not cost effective to deal with before. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a bank involved in, in partnering with this, but I mean, at the end of the day, isn't the whole point of this to provide services like this to people who didn't have them before? Yeah. I kind of wanted to make a comment connecting this story with the last one about Coinbase and the fact that, you know, they've shifted their focus. I mean, if their focus ever was on anything else to, you know, basically putting money into all these scams instead of providing services, like expanding financial services to people that don't have them. Um, because to, I think it was in August, I found a blog post that Coinbase had made where they interviewed a woman who helps girls learn to code and get paid in Bitcoin in Afghanistan. And they interviewed her. Um, she's very well known for doing that. I think the company was Code to Inspire. And I found it really strange that they interviewed her because Coinbase literally does not offer any services in Afghanistan at all. It doesn't, it, the only services it offers even in the entire Asian Pacific region is in Singapore and Australia. It doesn't serve like Southeast Asia or South Asia, which is where Afghanistan is. So yeah, I'm glad that BitPesa did not go in that direction. They're actually servicing people who don't have that kind of access. And I want to like really point out that there's a big difference between companies like them and companies like Coinbase, which talk all about how they're worried about financial inclusion and you know they were quoting um i think her name is pronounced furrow about how you know women in developing countries have never been in charge of anything in their lives with cryptocurrency girls can be in charge of something very important which is finances but coinbase obviously has not taken any effort whatsoever to actually expand that access they're just focusing on stupid coins so yeah there's it like that kind of that kind of divergence in like focus really upsets me like fewer people need to be like coinbase yeah and uh you know i mean like yeah that whole sbi uh stories they've been you know coming and yeah it's like a lot going on there in japan and uh i think that the whole remittance issue in africa that's a good deal i mean uh you know like you're saying there's a lot of stuff going on in africa where people are unbanked and, you know, yeah. And just like, you know, like you were saying, Janine, I mean, if Coinbase wants to do something revolutionary in the space, I mean, I'm just thinking about the whole remittance thing. It's like, uh, you know, the biggest remittance issue in the United States is uh, U.S. Mexico border and uh, Mexicans and, uh, you know, over here in, in the United States trying to send money back to their home country. Uh, they are constantly getting, you know, just raped with fees from Western Union and uh, and the way that they currently have to do things. And man, if there if there was just some little bit of research and development that I'm sure Coinbase could afford, 
is to uh, build some sort of remittance services for uh, immigrants here in the United States trying to get their uh, funds back to their family back home in uh, Mexico. And, uh, you know, it's it's like you're saying, there's the unbanked there in Africa. That's a that's a big thing that, you know, needs to happen as far as uh, Bitcoin helping these people out. But I think in the same that since there's like this large group of people that are also relatively unbanked in the United States is a, a, a good uh, population of Mexican citizens that are over here. And uh, whether legally or illegally, uh, they're trying to get their funds back across the border and they're always running into these problems. And these are people that are your neighbors. You know, these are people that are here in the country with uh, Coinbase. And, uh, yeah, they don't give a crap. I mean, it's all about uh, just trying to uh, make as much money as possible with all this vaporware and everything. They don't they're not, not trying it's, uh, it's upsetting. But somebody watching this, uh, please close eye and port it over to the U.S.-Mexican border movement. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of that's also one of the tricks um, that companies and even charities pull is that they they try to what's the word? Um, they give exposure to, you know, less fortunate people in faraway countries on the other side of the world. And maybe they'll, you know, donate some money. Like, for example, maybe Coinbase donated some money to Co to Inspire. Um, but they won't change the fundamental structure that, you know, is leaving them in poverty. And, but if you tell them like, you know, you should be doing this, why, why are you interviewing this person and claiming to care about, you know, empowering women when you're not actually changing anything, even though you have the power to do that, and they'll just say, well, it's Afghanistan, like a lot of regulations and blah, blah, blah. But then if you ask them, why aren't you helping people in a similar circumstance right in your neighborhood? they'll give you the same answer regulations like that's the reason that coinbase is basically a crypto bank now they they can't even i don't know like i part of it is just because i think they're not interested because of all the shitcoin stuff and part of it is because they've now positioned themselves to be you know one of these regulated banks and they can't go into that niche anymore that very very large niche it's not even a niche of people who really like they can't use money in the way that most like a lot of people in the u.s can so yeah like it's good that you pointed that out because yeah coinbase is ignoring people in their own backyard and of course they're going to ignore people on the other side of the world yeah and they like touting revolution and everything but it's always just about you know yeah this revolution and trying to create as many coins as possible Woo -wee! all right yeah let's hop into the next so next one is also involving the SBI group. Um, they've been working for a while on their own um, kind of private settlement coin uh, for, you know, pretty much cash-free purchases in normal retail environments with your smartphone. And they're actually rolling this out in a pilot program at their headquarters. Um, to kind of use for the, the cafes and restaurants around the immediate area. And what they're going to be doing is pretty much establishing an ATM-like machine in, in the office where you can pretty much show up, uh, use cash or credit or debit card, and pretty much top up your, um, they're calling it S-coin balance at the ATM, and then simply use your phone to facilitate payments. And... It's not really too many details um, in, in this article in terms of the actual technology, but the 
air quote DLT is been developed by a startup company called Orb, which is designed effectively for custom cryptocurrencies to be published and used for specific applications. So it's kind of looking at it, it's it seems like a private blockchain system trying to kind of facilitate the same kind of use as counterparty, which you know is is pretty big in Japan and I, th I think last year we kind of talked about this a little bit, how the counterparty kind of caught on in Japan and there were, there was kind of a lot of, you know, looking into using these types of tokens for consumer rewards programs and things like that. But honestly, I'm, I'm going to kind of be keeping a, a close eye on this program and just see how this plays out because this is kind of something I've been thinking about for a while in terms of how cryptocurrency adoption is going to play out in Japan. Like we, we've seen the Mitsubishi Bank, um, you know, make a few announcements uh, that they're working on a kind of a digital tokenized yen. You know, SBI has been talking about this coin. And I've been thinking for a while now about really how far of a leap it would be to build out these kind of privatized systems and then simply plug Bitcoin into them. Like just effectively deposit Bitcoin into the system in the same way that you would a, a, a yen or other fiat currency and be issued an equivalent Bitcoin token on one of these privatized systems for retail uses. And effectively function as a fully privatized sidechain or an analog of such to facilitate crypto payments in retail situations in Japan. Just because, like this, this is it's really kind of a long-term issue, scaling peer-to-peer -peer payments on a system like this, and it's it's not something that's going to be solved instantly overnight. It's not something that you're just going to be able to snap your fingers and instantaneously roll out to an entire country. But crypto adoption really seems to be kind of catching steam in Japan to a degree that it really isn't in most other countries around the world. And, you know, it just seems like the way things are going, it's kind of inevitable for these kind of two separate areas to kind of meet in the middle somewhere if consumer demand for you know actual retail use of cryptocurrencies catches on i mean it's we we're, we're talking about an entire country here and depending on how the rate of this accelerates you know i could very easily see demand for actual retail payment use blow up before the actual technology is there to facilitate it in a purely peer-to-peer -peer way. And with just how how much deeper a lot of, you know, established conglomerates in Japan have been going as far as this ecosystem, I could very easily see, like, the, this kind of hybridized system being established. Oh, man, I'm sorry. I'm like... I'm like fuming a little bit from something I'm seeing on Twitter, but yeah, this the story of like just yeah the SBI and S coin. I mean, it's a good test, right? I mean, uh, let them test this stuff out and see how far it goes, and you know we'll see uh see how it plays out.
Any thoughts, Janine? Nope. Alrighty then. On to the next one. So Google, starting in October, is going to be regionally reversing its blanket crypto advertisement ads. And starting in October in the United States and Japan, it is going to allow regulated cryptocurrency exchange or exchanges to purchase ad space through the Google advertising network. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it seems a, seems a little bit like um, they're going to selectively gatekeep uh, who's allowed to advertise for things, right? I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, we're going to see companies like Coinbase pile in and go where regulated and start having advertisements for all kinds of shady, scammy shit, right? Right? Yeah. I mean, speaking of uh, weird advertising system incentives, I mean, I have a lot of things to say about Google in the last two days or so, because uh, if anyone hasn't been following the fiasco with the um, automated sign-in thing in Google Chrome, which upset a lot of people, and apparently now they're reversing it, or most of it, because of how upset people got. Um, I also was criticizing people, uh, specifically two women from the uh, Chrome security team, because one of them, I mean, Google has been <laughs> like, who they are in, they are in a position, they're being criticized for this Chrome thing, they're being criticized for building the custom authoritarian search engine for the Chinese government. Um, but, you know, I had to pile on to that because there's a few little things that they missed. For example, um, Adriana uh, Porter-Felt, who is on the Google Chrome security team, uh, yeah, she made this tweet a few days ago about how I, I tried to find a tweet from her, like, because a few Google employees have come out and said, you know, I work at Google and I think this is really shitty. We should like some people have actually left. Like they've just quit their jobs at Google. Like that's how much moral integrity they have. Some people not so much integrity. Uh, people like Adriana, they won't even talk about it. They'll just instead make tweets like, um, "Oh my God, self-driving cars are so cool." But like, where is the purse holder? I don't know. Need a purse holder. Um, so yeah, she she would rather complain about the fact that there's no purse holder in her car than the fact that she's working for a company that is that is actively uh, building censorship technology, surveillance technology for the Chinese government. And one of the things that I remember, um, these uh, another person on that team is someone by the name of, uh, I can't pronounce her first name, but her last name is Tabritz. Uh, and she's the head of the, the security team, uh, I think specifically for the Chrome browser. And she made a, a statement um, or she was quoted as saying uh, in 2016 by Wired Magazine that the whole, the main reason that Google has been promoting this like HTTPS everywhere campaign, not to be confused with the excellent browser extension called H HTTPS everywhere, which is actually great. But um, a lot of the Google Chrome security people have been, you know, been trying to get more websites to have HTTPS, which, you know, in itself is a great thing. Like, no problem but it kind of uh there's a little bit of weirdness when it comes from people from google because according to the head of google chrome security 
she was saying that Google wants web pages to be able to reach deeper into your computer's resources, accessing the same sensitive information like location and offline data that apps routinely use. But if the web's tendrils are going to extend further into our private lives, they first need to be secure. You wouldn't want a man in the middle to be able to access those things too, would you? Uh, that's uh, except for the you the last part that was kind of sarcastic. Um, that's basically what was said in the Wired article. So yeah, um, <laughs> the fact that Google uh, is very unethical when it comes to its advertising system does not surprise me because apparently that tendril extends also into their motivation behind adding HTTPS because it's like, yeah, um, you know, as long as we're uh, using HTTPS to like access your system while we're surveilling you, that's cool, right? Like we can still take the data, no problem. Mm -hmm. But see like this just, th this fucking really like pisses me off because like th this entire thing was done under the auspice of protecting people from scams. But now they're going to pretty much only allow businesses that have regulatory approval to advertise. Like, you know, what if what if Samurai Wallet wanted to put out an advertisement for their wallet? Or 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 how about Bisque? Or Wasabi Wallet? Like are are, are they not going to be allowed to to have an advertisement because they haven't received some license of approval from a government authority like how does that work here like you know wh wh where is exactly is the line over what constitutes something that is allowed to advertise or isn't is it, is it dealing specifically with buying and selling things is this going to extend to tools to manage things yourself i mean i don't know google would i would be surprised if google would actually advertise things which actually lead to more decentralization for the web um and it's certainly not for cryptocurrency stuff it seems to make a lot of sense that they would just you know pony up for all their other friends in silicon valley you know coinbase is one of them so like why not help out your friends get some more business because we, we really need some more customers at the custodial centralized services that, you know, KYC everyone. I mean, that's like, you know, to be honest, Google is probably going to help out Coinbase with, you know, the KYC stuff and all of that because Coinbase has this whole thing called browser fingerprinting. And if Google wants to give, you know, just web pages, you know, any old web page, more access to your private data, of course, why wouldn't Coinbase want that so that they can, you know, make sure you're not someone undesirable like an immigrant or something like that? I'm going to save all my Google for final thought. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I guess fuck Google. And in the interest of time, let's slide along to the next story. So um, there is a town in Alberta, Canada named Medicine Hat with a population of around 60,000. And they've become kind of a big uh, mining hub. Um, Toronto company Hut 8 uh, spent more than $100 million building a four and a half hectare, um, or hectare site on the northern edge of the city. And they have a very large mining operation there. And I think also uh, Bitfury has a farm um, in this town as well. Uh, and collectively, 
Uh, Hut 8 has mined around 3,300 Bitcoins in all of their facilities in Alberta. And the Medicine Hat facility pulls in around 20 Bitcoins a day. So right now, this plant is, or I'm sorry, the, the electrical plant in the city puts out around 60, no wait, I'm screwing up my figures here. Okay, no, the, the Bitcoin mining facility can consume around 60 megawatts of power, which is pretty much uh, 10 times more than any other industrial facility in, in the entire city. And part of the reason they're here is that this, this town has a large surplus of gas energy and kind of, uh, you know, advertises itself as uh, an industrial park with cheap electricity rates. But uh, looking at the entire dynamic of, of difficulty adjustments and the potential of energy consumption to increase for mining operations, um, and I assume that a lot of environmental groups um, kind of reading about gas use um, by mining operations in the area also has some um, aspect of this. I, I believe they've pretty much been being lobbied by Greenpeace for a while. Uh, the mayor of this town has instituted a policy that effectively dictates if uh, a residential electricity demand experiences a huge spike, um, there is already an established policy to pretty much cut power to these mining facilities. And this has specifically uh, been crafted to deal with uh, the potential for heat waves and the huge increase in electricity that air conditioning um, would demand from residential areas. But it just it goes to show that you know miners need to really think long term in terms of their energy sources and how this is going to affect their operations because you know as much as as much as I'm sure some people are going to be thinking, what the fuck here? I mean, this is not really that unreasonable of a thing. This isn't a township effectively going like, we don't like this business here. So we're going to start playing price fixing games with rates. This is them just this, this operation is here. It's ostensibly not going to be fucked with for any reason, but if in the event of something where residential energy consumption is absolutely needed for a serious reason, they're going to prioritize by cutting the, the power from this facility. And this is something that mining operations should really be thinking about. I mean, you know, like I said, they, they sunk almost $100 million into this facility. And that's not something that you can just snap your fingers, pick up and move somewhere else. Like those, those costs are sunk now and they're going to have to deal with it. And this is just kind of a, a, a reality of the world. Like in something like a heat wave, uh, I'm sorry, but you know, people actually do die in serious heat waves when you have things like power failures. I mean, the first thing that jumps to mind is New York City maybe eight or 10 years ago with uh, the major power outage on the Eastern seaboard grid. There were actually people that died due to heat stroke because there was no power. And I mean, it's, 
it, it, it is what it is. And this is something that businesses are going to have to start thinking about, not just electricity rates and overall availability, but what happens during grid spikes and temporary unavailabilities and how are they going to structure their business plans and just the technical layout of their facility to actually deal with situations like this, because they're going to happen. Yeah, I mean, there is no infinite well of power where you can just ask for more when other people need it as well. Times, you know, you can't just have a uh, mind going ham on the electricity whenever it's absolutely necessary. I mean, uh, times of extreme temperatures, you know, depending upon, uh, you know, I mean, sometimes even when it's really cold, there's only electric heaters or mostly electric heaters. I mean, there's just times where for sure the power just has to be allocated to make sure that everyone is actually uh, staying alive and, you know, still around this town. I mean, can't just go all out crazy like that. Yeah. Sorry, man, my, my my comments are kind of short because I'm just like choking on this, but we'll, we'll get there right after this, uh, this last story. Let's go through it. All right. So the last one is pretty much just going to be a quick mention because as of last time I checked, there is still no concrete update. But yesterday was supposed to be the final arguments on the petition of the Supreme Court in India to strike down the ban by the Reserve Bank of India on cryptocurrency businesses uh, dealing with conventional fiat payment processors or banks. And so, you know, there's not really much to say except that that hearing and the resulting ruling should have been going on yesterday and a result coming out either then or sometime in the next day or so. But, um, you know, I, like I said, I've, I've been kind of tracking this and searching around here and there during the show, and I still can't find anything with any result coming from it. So hopefully by the next episode, that will have actually been put out there and we can see how the landscape in India is actually going to evolve in, in the fallout from this, whichever way it goes. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of, uh, I know that Unicoin and there's a lot of those companies over there in India where they could sure uh, just get some going on over there because uh, that, uh, I guess it was uh, trying to figure out what was the exact wording of what they put in place, but it's uh, it's not supposed to be there forever. I mean, it's supposed to be coming up on a decision, so let's get it cleared up. I'm sorry, my mind's like a little all over the place, man. I like, sh I really should keep my head off of Twitter when we're on the show, man. Cause, uh, yeah, like, you know, we doing this story on Google and reading through, and I've always, I've been thinking about this, man. Like, um, you got those, uh, tweets pulled up? Uh, nope. One second. Sorry. I was still digging around. Was there First something else you wanted to say on India? Nope. Go. So, yeah, like uh, just a little bit of a rant here. Like um, here in Boulder, Colorado, there is a Google headquarters office. And, uh, you know, there's a they were kind of allowed into town because they, uh, you know, 
they're Google, you know, they got a lot of money. So they, you know, pay the right people. They got the right offices and everything. And, you know, as every now and again, at uh, blockchain uh, meetups or, you know, somewhere around town in the tech places and they're around. And, uh, you know, there's this uh, little bit of a comment here on Twitter. Somebody posted saying uh, like, well, I guess there's this sign in downtown Boulder where it says, what is Google doing for Boulder? And, uh, you know, they talk about how like they invested in affordable housing and they're trying to do something for the National Center for Women and Information Technology. And, you know, they employ some people and give them a lot of money and everything. And yeah, that's all well and good. But uh, like this, yeah, this whole dragonfly thing, like it's just got me so, I don't man, I think it's got to do with the fact that I just, if I see a piece of trash on the ground i pick it up for the most part because i know it's like you're the only one that's gonna do it it feels like i i don't know if that's something that kind of came with just the way i was brought up or going through the military or something where it's like if you see something and you're capable of doing something about it then you should probably do it because the person behind you probably won't do it and if you expect something to get done then you should make that action and do it and um yeah Google's here in town, and it's like the thing that's going on with this dragonfly. As somebody that fought for the country and uh, believes in certain rights to individuals and the reasons why I put on that uniform and uh, put my life on the line, you'd think that American companies that are profiting off of American citizens using their services should operate within an ethical standard that in lines with what it means to be an American and like thing really is just uh it's so aggravating whenever I know they're right there they're right down the street here and I know that the uh, city council here in Boulder is really cozy with them they're they're really uh got them heavily implemented in master plan and uh it just it burns me up man to know that like they're uh they're just they're just sitting there with no response to this dragonfly and uh they really have to have a response because I don't understand how they're supposed to be an American company if they're doing this. I mean, like they're actively censoring people in another country. And like we've said on other episodes, this is a great testing environment for whenever they want to bring that stuff over here. There's nothing China once, you know, once they get this thing developed the way they want, I mean, they can move it anywhere. And for the most part, I would say there is already a lot of good, uh, you know, obfuscation and try to keep people distracted, censorship here and there on the internet already. But uh, this is just another level of uh, just taking it to like it's business as usual. This is what we do is we censor stuff for you. And, and that's not American at all. Man. And I mean, it just I mean, I really want to go to this. I mean, I want to, you know, I'm just saying like earlier that story about people in D.C. appealing to federal authorities like it's uh it's aggravating, but it it does feel like I should go to the city council and just uh you know let them have it, man. Try and try and get the city council to come up with something to where they'll have a response about this. Like you know, like either you stop developing this shit, or you uh you know you face some penalties, or maybe you get out of Boulder or uh, something. I mean, it's really hard to say that that's going to be doing any help. Whatever, it's just so much money wrapped up in all this. But uh, yeah, man. During the show, I watched. I was like twi flipping around Twitter, and I ran into that. I'm gonna avoid that. It's just like now. It's, it's like I'm still just. Uh, 
My heart's all beating fast, and I don't know what to do to get rid of it. Yeah, I mean, the thing about, you know, Google or someone from Google or someone supporting Google pointing out how much money they donate is that, I mean, Google has a ton of contracts with the government where they receive tax money anyway. So, yeah, a bit awkward. And also the rest of their money they're making off of advertising, which is basically a giant giant surveillance uh, infrastructure. Um, the funny, the funniest thing, uh, the funniest like excuse for like unethical behavior I've ever seen was this, uh, I think her last name is Hennessy or something, Susanna Hennessy. Uh, I think she's like a national security commentator and she, uh, she pointed out, I think last year that the NSA deserves more credit for having excellent, uh, breast pumping facilities in Fort Meade. They're very private. And it's like, yes, I, you know, that's wonderful. We can sacrifice the privacy of the entire country, but you will have your private uh, breast pumping room at Fort Meade. Yes, that's what we're all rooting for. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, at and, least they kick that yeah. in a purse holder. They give us some laughs, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was probably the funniest. Um, so my thoughts for the end of the day. Uh, I think the last show we did, the last Block Dida show we did, uh, was about, uh, it was contentious because we were talking about the announcement of the Bee Foundation. And I just wanted to put this out there. I thought it was an excellent suggestion for a name change, uh, Plan B <laughs> or the Bee Plan, something like that. Uh, I think it's a good suggestion for a couple of reasons. Um, <laughs> uh, very yeah. suggestive. Yeah. And my. Uh, my second one is more about uh, a very infuriating story that happened uh, as a result. Uh, if anyone is in the U.S. You pro or even outside the U.S., apparently a lot of people watch uh, hurricane news in Europe as well. Uh, there was basically a woman in North Carolina who rescued like dozens of animals who had been left behind by their owners. And there's like really sad videos where people go to their neighbor's houses and rescue dogs out of their kennels that are like just about to drown because the water is rising. And so she took it upon herself to not only stay, but she took in a bunch of animals who had been left behind uh, or maybe just separated in all the chaos from their owners. And she was arrested for not having a shelter license and for administering off-the-shelf medication to a few of the animals like antiseptic or something for a Siamese cat. That is just, it's just plain ridiculous. Like that should not be happening. First of all, I'm surprised that the police department there even has the time to focus on a woman who is rescuing animals on her own time with her own money buying the medicine and uh, administering it like do they have nothing better to do is there not some i don't know like cleanup they can help with or whatever do they really have to arrest a woman because she didn't have a license for operating a shelter even though that was obviously not her intention her intention was to save animals from dying and then to figure out who the owners were and then give them back like it wasn't a business <laughs> it was a charity uh, so yeah, great job <laughs> on doing that. Uh, if this something like this ever happens again, I hope people actually like 
stand up around her and don't even let people like this get arrested because this is just embarrassing that someone like this would get arrested. Oh yeah, these disasters, man. It's uh, oh, it's always just like yeah, people are trying to do the right thing, and then uh, you know the federal government comes in there and or yeah, or somebody just gets arrested for doing something that they thought was helpful, and uh, they say, oh well, you're violating this. But I mean, like really, that's a public good. I mean, like I've been through a lot of hurricanes, and you know the water is not exactly clean whenever it's flooded, and a lot of those animals die relatively quickly because they drink that water. So. Yeah, she is a hero. And, uh, you know, I mean, basically, you're just keeping a lot of animal corpses out of that water. So, I mean, like, yeah, she uh, she deserves something better than this, for sure. All right. I guess uh, my final thought is a rant. So, James Wood was recently just banned for Twitter for posting a meme that staying home makes a woman's vote worth more. And the reason given was he was affecting the political process. So I have a message for Twitter. Go fuck yourself and ban yourself because your constant harassing of users to go register and vote is affecting the political process. So fuck you, Jack Dorsey. Get fucked. I'll vote if I want to. I won't vote if I want to. It's none of your goddamn business. On that note, see you guys on Sunday. Later, everyone.